Um, keeping with the series that Pastor Ward started last week on when reality bites. And he started off with how to overcome fear. And so this week I want to take it to that next step of, of moving beyond fear and talk about how to find hope, which is the next step on that journey of relationship. And a full disclosure, I did think I'd be laughing all the way to the bank with this topic, all right? How to Find Hope is literally the story of the Bible. It's that the overarching narrative of coming back to relationship. Um, I, I thought this would be much easier until about five nights ago when I sat down in front of a blank screen and just had nothing. There was just... <laughs> Nothing was cut. No hope. Um, but what I thought I'd actually do today is start by talking to two different audiences who might be here today. It might be overlapping, might be completely different. But the first one, and I think the most important group to, to start with today, um, is those who are in troubled times right now, those who are trying to find hope themselves. And look, feelings of hopelessness are a very personal thing. What can be a mild hiccup for one person can be absolutely soul-crushing for another person. So I want to start off by saying, firstly, whatever you're facing right now, it's no more or less valid than the person sitting next to you, okay? I don't want to downplay or, or shrug off what you might be feeling just because, you know, Instagram tells you it's a first-world problem. So that's the first point of going on. So picking up where Pastor Ward left off about overcoming fear, I wanted to actually um, talk a bit about where I come from on the topic. And um, it's something I, I haven't, I don't go out of my way to share with people. Um, so bear with me for a, a little bit here. You see, I was um, still am in many ways a, a bit of a chronic yes man. It wasn't about appeasing people or always rolling over, but it was about taking on far too much simply because it was offered and putting all these expectations and obligations on myself. And I think looking back that it was probably a, a relatively simple misunderstanding about what servant leadership meant, what being a good servant meant in a Christian context. And I started taking on everything people were offering. I started thinking that servanthood meant keeping a stiff upper lip, even when it was getting overwhelming. It meant serving and trying to provide for your family, even when you just felt snowed under by these obligations that you were putting on yourself. And look, I wanted to be everyone's go-to guy. That was, that was how I started to identify myself. I wanted to be that guy who could cram 48 hours into a single day. Because right, that's how I, I thought a servant heart should work. And in the beginning, look, it worked fine. You know, people were grateful. You started to get a reputation for being that go-to person. And the feedback that came out of that, it, it gets you into a really bad loop of all of a sudden needing and wanting more of that feedback and wanting to be relied upon. And so before, before I really knew what was happening, I, I'd opened the door to this pridefulness about needing to be everyone's go-to guy and taking on more and more expectations and pressures on myself. Uh, I, 
you know, I became that guy who would stay back hours after work just to be that guy who did it, the person who volunteered for 27 ministries because that was somehow in my head a sign of your faith. And I found myself in a position of being really fearful of not being able to keep that pace up, that all of a sudden I'd taken on so much and I didn't know how to get myself out of this situation. And I, I became this prisoner of a, a really perverse interpretation of the Proverbs that you know, God is a bottomless well of strength, draw upon Him and He will sustain you. Or, you know, to whom much is given, much will be expected. I found myself trapped in this circumstance where I couldn't find a way out of it. And so trying to find hope, it actually became a challenge because bit by bit I started to think that if I was overwhelmed that was actually a sign of a lack of faith and so if I couldn't live up to those expectations it wasn't just a reflection on me as a man and as a husband I started to think it was a reflection on me as a Christian and a reflection on God as being somehow insufficient that I couldn't tap into this relationship and so hope, and this is going back a couple of years ago, it started to feel like this dirty concept to me that if I hoped for respite, I was admitting that God wasn't enough to sustain me. And look, it, it was this prison I, I found myself in. Like I'd prayed for all of these breakthroughs to come through. I'd prayed for all of these opportunities. And so if I was ever to say that it had become too much, I would be rejecting what God had given me. Fear and hopelessness, they don't always paralyse you from action. They can sometimes also constrain you and, and make you feel locked because you don't want to let people down. That's the other side of fear that we can often face. And it's hard because it runs so close to the Christian message of provision and of servanthood that you can feel hopeless because you get into this point where you arrogantly compare yourself and your own resilience and your own capacity to God's and by mixing those two up you find yourself in this position where you can't find hope because you feel like you've exhausted it. For me it was I wasn't spending any more time reflecting on his commands. You know I, I was starting to serve and act out of this place of compulsion I, I was not connecting out of fellowship, it was out of obligation. And so fear started to rob me of that richness of the Christian life that's promised to us. And look, I, I honestly, I hit some pretty hard times over the past six years. Periods of, of genuinely crippling depression when you just want to stay curled up and you can't can't for the life of you see a way out of it. You can't see how you could possibly find hope. Because intellectually, you know the message of hope, you know the stories in the Bible, you know the promises that have been made, but emotionally, emotionally, you can't feel like you can access that anymore. There's a lot of blank faces out there. Am I talking to anyone else out there today? <laughs> right. Look, the way that I found hope and, and that I continue to find hope. Like it's from this single verse. It's infuriatingly simple, 
but unbelievably immense, tucked at the back of the Bible in Revelations. And it says this in Revelation 3.30, Lo, says the Lord, I am standing at the door and knocking. Whoever shall open that door, I shall go in and I will be with them. See, I'd gotten to this point where one of the devil's great tricks of shame had blinded me and I felt like I was locked in this prison, when in reality, my Saviour was standing at a door and knocking. And all I had to do was say, this is too much for me right now, I need you to come in and be with me. And he's made that promise time and time again throughout all the stories in the Bible. See, it's not some, it's not like a performance-based guarantee that he'll give you support if you reach this threshold. The story that is etched across the entire universe, the story that is ingrained in every single story, every single book of the Bible, is that He is ready and He is willing. That has to be the starting point. Now, the kicker is this, we don't have to do a single thing. It's not on our own strength that we lighten our burden. We don't need to keep that stiff upper lip and soldier on. Because he has been knocking since before time itself began. He's been knocking and wanting to be a part of our lives, of this very moment in our lives. And at no stage is he promising that it will be easy, but he's saying you won't be alone. And that, that's the starting point to, to breaking out of fear and finding that hope is knowing you're not alone. So for me... And one of the parts I want to leave you with today is if you can believe that simple statement, if you can believe nothing else that, than other than He is here and that He wants to take your burdens, then you've found your square one. You've found your true north that is going to point you towards hope and towards that journey of restoration and recovery. That is where you find hope, the promise that He is here and He wants to be with you. Everything that comes after that, it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other. If you know that he's walking beside you, it's just a matter of process after that. Because even if, even before you get to the point of recognising how your gifts will help you love everyone as if they're your brother or sister, and even before you get to the point of having the experience and knowing how to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The first part of it, and the first part that we talk about on the Christian journey is that decision to let Him in. And I think often we can, um, we can assume that it's like a, a once-only measure and once it's let in, well then everything is up to you to keep that ball rolling. But every single day, every single moment, you need to choose to let Him back in, to say, yep, I know you're there. And I need you to come in and be with me in this time. And look, you, you can. You can look to any book in the Bible, any character to find this. You know, um, you've got Abraham um, struggling to find hope, feeling he was burdened by the promises that didn't come real. You've got Hannah dealing with promises that she couldn't see them being fulfilled. Um, Job, Peter, it, it's the story of all the characters. But when I was thinking about this message today, I thought, you know what, the, the inner west is the hipster capital of Australia. So instead, instead of looking at those stories, instead of going with Job, 
I actually wanted to go back with some vintage Nehemiah. All right? Can anyone honestly say they're up to speed on Nehemiah? All right, look, I feel for Nehemiah because he was me. All right, he was someone who was so burdened by the expectations that he'd placed on himself that he kept struggling to find hope, kept struggling how to break out of that mindset he was in. So the, the story to Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer to a Persian king and he'd heard all these stories of the temple being vandalised, of um, people going in and committing atrocious acts within the temple grounds. And he took it on himself and to take leave and go back and, and lead sites to clean up the temple, to purify it and rebuild it. But the issue was he, he had these challenges along the way, not only with the people he was interacting with, but he'd created this, this idealised sense of duty, of what he had to do to know himself that he succeeded. And so he really had to fight several times to find hope when he couldn't see that vision coming real. He goes back to Jerusalem and he, he starts to gather the local leaders, gather these work groups and you know, he begins to rebuild and to purify the temple, which is a really extensive process of cleaning it out after some of these you know, terrible acts that had occurred in there over the years. But what happens is every time he basically rebuilds one room, one corner, as soon as he moves on to the next... The crowds go back in and they get back up to their old business in this new, beautifully renovated room, all right? And it happens a couple of times and basically he loses his mind in anger at this because it's like, Lord, I'm trying to do what you're telling me to do. I'm, try I'm doing everything I can. I'm working 23 hours a day. What's the story? He's facing bandits and corrupt officials and fearful citizens who keep sabotaging. He's struggling to find helpers because every time he gets workers in, they steal his tools, steal his food and nick off again. I mean, it, I think poor Malcolm thinks he has trouble with the unions today. Like, it has nothing on the story of Nehemiah. All right. He even uncovers the, these plots to kill a few of his the few friends he still has in Jerusalem. And what he does in Nehemiah 4.14, he says this, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and all the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Firstly, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's his first starting point. With everything else going on, before you think of any obligations, remember the Lord. That's your starting point. Because you see, in the full context, it's saying, remember what God has done and what He's promised. Whatever challenges you think you're facing, whatever strength of enemies that are coming against you, God is stronger, He is greater, and He is doing what He has promised. He sends this message, Nehemiah sends this message to one of his particularly fearful foremen, who just can't get his head around it, in Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Nothing like what you're saying is actually happening. You're just making it up in your head. And he goes back and says again, remember the Lord and let's move on. Now, Amanda and I joke about this sometimes, that you know, when people say they're depressed or that they're feeling hopeless, so often people's response can be, 
just snap out of it. Like, obviously, it's not all hopeless for you. You have all these things going for you. It's like, well, thank you. Like, no one's ever... Ex- just stop being sad. Like, I wish I had known it was that simple. You know? But that's not the message that the Bible tells us. The crux of the message of finding hope across the entire Bible is this. God says, don't worry about your work ambitions just yet. I'm here and I've got a plan. Don't worry about the, the rules of the Sabbath or how you'll serve. I'm here. We'll get there in time. I know your, your health and your finances are keeping you awake at night. I'm here. Let's walk this together. So step one, finding hope for everyone out there today who is, is struggling to find that way to, to get their head above water, who's drowning under obligations. I say this, remember that He is here and He wants to be with you. Does that sound like a reasonable starting point? All right. The second audience, and I, I, now I've got 20 minutes, I need to keep cracking on with this. Unless I get poor Matty Quack up again for uh, dragging on for half an hour. All right, the second audience is for those who are going well. Those for whom, you know, hope is a relatively easy thing because, you know, each week largely is at least no worse than the week before it. You know, you're not necessarily drowning, you're just, it's at least all okay or you're having a few good wins. Because can I say that hope seems easy when everything's going right for you, with no major hiccups. But the, the challenge is that reflecting on God's promise is something we need to be doing constantly in every moment of our lives. Because it can be easy to be seduced into thinking that a, a minimum level of success is the baseline that in our own strength, we can at least get to a pass mark and God brings us in to take us to the A+. That's the, the next step if you aren't constantly reflecting on the hope and the promise of God. And we do, we talk about it in prayer, you know, in reflecting that everything, every promise, every provision, every security, it comes from God. But I think we can genuinely be complacent, not out of any sort of malice or any sort of willful act, but we can start to build our homes on this soft sand instead of on the bedrock. And the issue with that is that complacency makes us dull and we're not as strong as we need to be when those storms do come. You know, there's a reason, there's a reason that in the Old Testament the image of hope, the symbol, was an anchor, right? It holds fast in the storms, but those storms can come up fast. Like they can really blindside you. And we need to be prepared and ready and reflective and be in the habits of being hopeful in God's promise, even in the sunny days. Because the flip side to the anchor metaphor, the one that we don't often talk about, is that anchors need to be used. They need to be regularly run out so that you can stop the oxide and the rust from just binding it together and turning it into this immensely valuable but immensely useless bit of ballast in your ship. You know, and look, I'll tell you this from a Navy perspective, you, you can't just leave your anchor there and trust that in six months that it will still run out as smoothly as you need it to when those storms blow up. You either need to, to lay it out on the wharf 
in the clear sunlight and inspect it, look for cracks, look for issues, look for weaknesses. Or you need to drop it out at sea regularly and let the currents, let the, the seas strip it back and keep it clean. I really thought I'd get a wow out of that one. <laughs> I really thought that was... All right, Joe, come on. All right. If you only ever leave your anchor in the anchor locker, if you leave that promise of hope at the back of your head and you let it go unused out of habit, then when the storm comes, you're left with this nightmare case of tangled headphones that just can't do anything for you. They can with great effort and with great pain and heartache as the storms are blowing up and you're trying to let the anchor out, but it's the the habit of reflecting on it and using it and testing it regularly, that's where you'll get the consistency of being able to leverage hope. There we go. I thought I was onto a winner with that, that analysis. I really did. All right, see, just to, to start to wrap it up, the other part to it is that we are living ambassadors. We're living mirrors of God's message of hope. And there will come a time, it may be after the service today, it might be in the, the quiet periods at work, or it might be at 2am when you get that phone call from a friend who's just, they're drowning. There will come a time when people will ask you, when they will plead with you to know how you find hope, to find how you continue to tap into God's promise when everything seems to be going bad. You know, Proverbs uh, 23, 18, it tells us that hope is the certainty that the future holds good. And often that certainty isn't there. That's the one that we need to be prepared for. Because when they ask that question, you're not going to be able to take it on notice and come back in a week's time. When people are pushed to that limit, when they're struggling to find hope, when they're trapped by fear, you need to be able to explain the reason for your hope. And I'm not talking about a a, you know, this legalistic, apologetic, this articulated defense of the rational steps in the resurrection. You know, I'm just talking about having an explanation for why you hope. There's a reason that counselors and psychologists, that when you sit down with them, they don't, they start by listening rather than interrupting you with a barrage of questions and solutions and other ideas. In Peter, in 1 Peter 3.15, this is the verse for apologetics that, that tells you how you need to go about it. It says this, you need to be open-hearted and empathetic with those who are struggling to understand where hope has gone. You need to have a reason. Be ready to give a defence of the hope that is in you. There's a reason that, that shows like Oprah and, and books like The Secret are so popular. People tend to feel like hope is some riddle, something that, you know, is locked to all but the most successful few and you need to, if you think about it hard enough, if you just know the magic word, then all of a sudden you'll have endless hope that will never fade. Hope doesn't mean preventing the storms. And that's not the explanation we need to be giving. It's not about denying hardships. It is about trusting that the best is yet to come. That's our message. 
So finding hope comes from knowing God is there and He wants to be with you. It's knowing that when God promises, it is done. And knowing that what God promises is good. That's the starting point for finding hope. That's the starting point that got me out of darkness. That's the starting point for people on their journey towards restoration. That's how we and that's how the world is going to find hope. So I'll leave you, I'll leave you with this final verse. All right. Lamentations. It's one of the most tragic books in the Bible. Um, it's a collection of poems about the destruction of the first temple, um, the people of Jerusalem deserting their faith. It, look, this event may as well have been the end of times for the Israelites. The whole story of Exodus and establishing themselves in the promised land, it, it was evaporating, it was crumbling day by day. Across all of Jewish history, that destruction of the first temple is probably one of the top five most traumatic events. But Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21 to 22 says this, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end.